0: In the following live session recording, Claude King, Discipleship and Church Health Specialist with Lifeway Christian Resources, talks about the final command, growing and multiplying mature disciples. The listener will identify the stages of spiritual maturity and learn about tools that can be used to move people from one state of maturity to the next. The goal is to develop a strategy for multiplying mature disciples who become disciple makers. Let's join Claude now. Thank y'all for coming. Um, Let me uh, introduce you to the final command. Um, You would know this as the uh, Great Commission, but uh, when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he had 40 days to give his last minute instructions to his disciples. They had a whole new understanding of what this is about after he died on the cross, and then he rose from the grave. And during those 40 days, Jesus uh, shared many things with his disciples. Uh, One of the things Luke's Gospel tells us that Jesus, uh, beginning with the Law and the Prophets, explained everything the Scriptures had to say about him. And I'm thinking, Luke, why didn't you give us that sermon? Wouldn't you like to have had that sermon? He didn't write that one down, but every one of the Gospel writers records a statement of the final command from Christ. Uh, And it's in different words, in different settings, but Jesus was trying to drill home this one final command because if his disciples didn't obey this one, everything he had done would have been in vain. And so Jesus uh... is trying to drill home this message matthew's gospel is maybe the most familiar to us but jesus said all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth uh, notice he starts by uh, claiming that all the authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him uh... there's a reason for that he's getting ready to command them and he wants them to know i have the authority to expect your obedience to this one I'm expecting obedience. Uh, And then he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Uh, It Probably, we're told, it might be better translated, as you were going, make disciples. Um, The command is make disciples. Anybody else that needs a handout? Um, Okay. Um, Keep your hand up and we'll... Try to get them. <laughs> if you're uh, if you're here with a spouse, maybe if y'all could share one, that might help us. Uh, anybody else doesn't have one? Uh, here, here's one up here. Uh, okay, good. Okay, thank you. Um, but the command is make disciples. Notice it does not say make decisions. Make disciples. Uh, they they look and act like Jesus kind of people uh, of all nations. That's probably better translated people groups, because um, there are lots of people groups in a geopolitical nation. You know, you look on a map or a globe, you see a nation with boundaries. Uh, they didn't know those nations in the first century, but. Uh, people groups. And so in North America, for instance, we've got 365 sovereign nations that are called Native American tribes. And each one of them is a separate people group. They've got their own culture, their own language, their own history. Um, and, uh, And so those are all people groups. And Jesus said, make disciples of all of those all nations, all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe how much? Everything I've commanded you. Uh, When you stop and think about the magnitude of this command, make disciples, not just decisions, so that they look like Jesus. They follow Him. Of all people groups, all over the world, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And you think, Lord, that's impossible. (laughs) We can't do that. That's too big for us. Uh, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you would be able to testify, my church has done a good job of this, and I'm obeying it all? And you realize that that's an impossible (laughs) assignment. I mean, it's too huge for us to think about reaching that level of completion of this final command. The good news, though, is that Jesus uh, winds up by saying, and remember, I'm going to be with you always. Uh, we don't have to do this by ourselves. He's uh, going to work in us. The, one of the scriptures that's really been meaningful to me in Philippians 2.13 says, uh, it is God who's working in you, causing you to want to do His will, and then enabling you to do it. So God puts it in our heart to desire we want to obey Him, and then He helps us obey Him. And uh, that's really good news. Well, this is the final command. In Mark's Gospel, it says go into all creation and preach the good news. We're supposed to do that all over the world. In Luke's Gospel, he says repentance and forgiveness of sins would be preached in His name, beginning in Jerusalem, and you are the witnesses of these things in John's Gospel the final command is as the Father sent me well what did the Father send him to do he had told us uh, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost and Jesus said as the Father sent me so send I you and then the final statement of the final command occurs in Acts one eight. Jesus knew that the disciples would remember this day for the rest of their lives. If I were to ask you, I realize there's some younger folks in here that might not remember this, but if I were to ask you where were you on September 11, 2001 when you got the news that terrorists had attacked the Trade Centers and the Pentagon and crashed a plane, you probably could tell me where you were and how you got that news because when history-making, life-changing things like that happen, it gets etched into your memory. And uh, it's kind of like what uh, Jamie Doe just shared with us, his story of when his father announced that he was leaving. That got etched into his memory. Well, Jesus knew on this Mount of Olives, He's going to say his last words. His disciples are going to watch him ascend into the clouds and disappear. Angels are going to come and say, hey, he's coming back again. And the disciples will remember this day forever. So he carefully crafts his last words of his final command. And he says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth, and he's gone. Jesus has given us a final command. He gave it to his original disciples, knowing if you don't obey this one, everything I've done will have been in vain. And uh, and he went to the Father and asked the Father to send the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, he did that. And Peter preached filled with the Holy Spirit and 3,000 people from all over the known world got saved that day and the world's never been the same. But you and I realize that uh, it's the generation before us that was faithful to uh, obey the final command and that's why we have come to know the Lord. Somebody told us. Somebody helped to make a disciple out of us. So I want to talk to you about obeying this final command. Uh, I've got this statement on your handout but Uh, Years ago, we tried to come up with a simple definition for disciple-making. What is it that we want to produce? What are we making? And we use this description, disciple-making guides people to be transformed in Christ-likeness so they think and act like Christ. Uh, Our job is to help people become, you know the word Christian? Christian. Basically, means little Christian, little Christ. Um, that's what God's after. He's after a people who are transformed into the image of His Son. In Romans eight twenty nine, we're told that those God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And God's in the process of transforming us into Christ's likeness, and. So our job is to facilitate and to help people grow from where they are when they first come to Christ to be transformed into the image of His Son so that essentially when people meet me, they meet Jesus in me. Uh, My dad grew up on a farm in Middle Tennessee, and he said as a teenager his father loaned him to a neighbor to help him plow his ground, and he said it was a hot humid day on the Cumberland River. I'm guessing y'all know hot humid down here, (laughs) uh, a few places, but um, he said the sun was beaming, the breeze wasn't blowing, and I was sweating up a storm working behind a team of mules. And he said, I got thirsty, and when I couldn't stand it any longer, I stopped my mule team and I went over to the farmer to ask him for permission to get a drink of water. And the farmer stopped his mule team and he spit out his tobacco juice, and the tobacco juice started drooling down his chin. And he said, yeah, Archie, there's a water jug over under the shade tree. Go get you a drink. My dad went over to the shade tree, picked up the water jug, and he said something was growing on the inside of the jug, and it looked nasty. And he said, I looked at that jug, and I thought about that farmer with the brown tobacco juice drooling down his chin, and I decided I wasn't that thirsty. (laughs) And I went back to plowing. Now, my dad was a pastor and I've heard him tell that story and then turn to the congregation and asked this question. So what's the condition of your water, Joe? You see, when God saved us, He placed the living water of Jesus Christ in us. And His plan is that we would be so transformed into Christ-likeness. That we would become so clean and pure That when people meet us, they meet Jesus in us without any human pollution or corruption. But I'm afraid that what's happened in American Christianity is that we have allowed the corruption and the pollution of the world and our own sinful behavior and our yielding to the cravings of our sinful human uh, life to corrupt us And what the world sees in us, they're coming to the conclusion, I'm not that thirsty. I don't want what you got. Because they don't see the real thing. But if they could see the real thing, now there there would be some who would crucify Jesus again. Uh, They're not going to receive him. They're going to reject him. But we need to let our world have the opportunity to see what Jesus looks like. And we are his representatives. We're his ambassadors. We're laborers together with God. And and so that's a part of our assignment is to help people uh, become transformed into the likeness of Christ. I want to share with you Paul's example of how he did disciple-making, and I've got these uh, scriptures uh, for you, but in Second Corinthians, and uh, I, I've got verses 4 and 5 on the, the slide, but I want to begin looking in uh, verse 1 of First uh, Corinthians chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Uh, Notice Paul said, I didn't come to wow you with my oratory skills. I didn't come to you with a well-thought-out argument to prove that Jesus is the Christ. In fact, he said, I came to you in fear and trembling. Does that sound like the Paul you know? (laughs) This is the guy who was beaten and imprisoned and wound up probably testifying before the emperor himself in Rome, but he uh, he said, I came to you in fear and trembling, and he said, I didn't want to try to wow you with my oratory or my argument. I wanted your faith to rest in the power of God. I wanted you to see a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And when we think about Paul the Apostle, we think he's the guy that wrote a third of the New Testament. Uh, he's a guy that planted churches all over the known world of the day, and probably uh, we know he, he says there are uh, believers in Caesar's household, so he, we know he was getting close to the top of the Roman Empire in his witness. And we may forget that Saul of Tarsus was the number one terrorist of the New Testament church. And, uh, and Paul comes to Corinth and he says, I, I want to show you what the Holy Spirit can do. He can take the number one terrorist and shape him into the image of Christ. That's what God can do. He said, I want your faith to re- rest in what God can do, not what man can do. Now, Paul goes on to share with us his model in 1 Corinthians 4.16. He says, be imitators of me." Some people have uh, thought that was really arrogant for him to have said that. But Paul wasn't being arrogant. He knew that Christ was the one that had brought about this change in his life. And, uh, and he knew that what God had done in him, God could do in other people. But then he goes on in 1 Corinthians 11, and he says, uh, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And essentially what Paul's saying is, I'm going after Christ's likeness. I want to follow His example. That's what a disciple is. He's a follower of Jesus Christ. He said, I'm following His example. And if you'll follow Christ the way I'm following Christ, you can get there too. Come on, I'll show you how to do it. And so Paul is modeling for, uh, for people how they can become like Christ by following his example in Ephesians 5.1 he then says be imitators of God ultimately that's what we're going after we're not we're not wanting to become like Paul or a Henry Blackaby or an Avery Willis or a T.W. Hunt although those would be wonderful examples or some other godly man or woman that you are aware of but ultimately we need to go after Christ's likeness to be imitators of God, but then there's even better news. We don't have to just imitate him. If we will die to ourselves and let Jesus live in us, they can see people, people can see Jesus in us. And that's God's plan. Uh, let me share with you, though, a church that did that. They followed Paul's example as they followed Christ. First Thessalonians. Uh, and let me just kind of give you the background. In, uh, when Paul got the, the vision in Troas, a man from Macedonia said, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And Paul went to Macedonia. And uh, Thessalonica is in Macedonia. Um, the people in one city nearly stoned him to death. And he goes to Thessalonica. He's there three weekends. He preaches on the Sabbath and um, three weekends, and then the Jews run him out of town. That's the church he's writing to. We don't know how much other time he spent in Thessalonica, but it wasn't lengthy periods of time, the way he spent in Corinth or in Ephesus. Uh, He wasn't there a long, long time. But listen to his words to them, beginning in verse uh, 4. Um, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power and with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. Here, that's what he told the Corinth. He said, I came to you not with word, persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Here was a church that saw a demonstration of the Spirit's power to transform a life, and Paul said, you followed my example, and you followed the example of the Lord, and as a consequence of that, you're becoming a model yourselves to show other people how to follow the Lord all over Macedonia and Achaia. Well, when you look at a modern-day map, that's Greece, Macedonia, Albania that whole region of the world was being impacted by this church that had become followers of Christ because they followed the example of Paul in going after Christ likeness and he said as a result your faith is becoming known everywhere. Could your church be a church like that? Is God any different than he was then? He's looking for a people that will obey His final command. And if we will obey Him, it's not what we can do, it's what He can do in us. That God can work through us to have a profound impact on others. Um, I don't know that I have time to deal with this one, but let me just... uh, One of the things I do typically is ask the question, How were you discipled? one of the ways uh, people are discipled is through small groups. I'm a testimony to that. I was a preacher's kid, and every Sunday morning I was in Sunday school. Sunday night I was in training union. Then it was church training and then discipleship training, but I grew up going to small groups on Sunday nights. and Wednesday night we had um, royal ambassadors for guys and a prayer meeting. We'd have a January Bible study for a week in January and um, sometimes we do a doctrine study and we had two weeks of vacation Bible school where I was in small groups studying the Bible with other kids my age and and uh, I was in small groups a lot and that's a lot of how I came to grow in Christ likeness. Some people uh, have been had the privilege of having somebody one-on-one that takes them under their wing and disciples them, teaches them challenges them say hey come with me and i'll show you how to how to be a witness and i'll show you how to do ministry and and you have a one-to-one mentor relationship with a person Uh, some people though the truth is about the only discipleship they gets when they attend a worship service once a week because that's all they do and for some that's that's all they get but that's more than nothing um, some people have been discipled through a master teacher and a, a master teacher model is what we're in today. Uh, here's a guy up front who's going to teach you everything he's learned and you all sit and listen and hopefully something will stick and you'll go do something with it. And, and that's a way to communicate lots of information uh, and, and that is a part of a disciple making process Uh, Some people have been discipled through books and audio or video. Um, And when I helped Henry write Experiencing God, uh, we knew it was a significant message, but we didn't have a clue how many millions of people now have studied Experiencing God in languages all over the world and it's being I was in uh, China three years ago, and it's being printed in mainland China and I met a, a house church pastor who uh, he he moved to Shenzhen because he wanted to get away from persecution. He kept getting ar- arrested, and he said that the the communists beat my ear to death. In one of the beatings, he lost the hearing in his ear. Uh, but uh, he had a pit. He had a copy of. Um, Experiencing God book in Chinese, and he said, I studied this years ago. He had a diploma that was signed by Bob Record and um, Tom Rayner and uh, who else? Uh, Jerry um, Rankin, Rankin. (laughs) those signatures on it, and uh, he said, I know of a thousand pastors in China that have studied this book. And, uh, and so it's getting everywhere. Some people have been discipled through the writings of others. Uh, if I look at the persons who have influenced my growth in discipleship, probably the number one person that's affected me, his name's Andrew Murray. And he died in 1917, so I never met the guy, but he wrote books. And I have read and reread and reread his books and sought to apply those scriptures, guided by the Holy Spirit. And I've been discipled through books in a lot in a significant way. Uh, but there are other people that would have to testify. You know, the truth is, I've not really been discipled and taught how to follow after Christ. Um, one of the things I typically I take a survey. I don't. I, I need to move on, but. Uh, which of those ways was most likely the way you were discipled? And uh, it, there are people. If I were to ask a lot of, usually a lot of people, it's either small groups or one to one, and a variety of other uh, uh, others of those. But if I were to ask, if I were to ask you, which one of those is the the most effective? Usually, it's the way you were discipled that was the most effective. Uh, But the truth of the matter is this, we need to make disciples. Use all of the above except number six. (laughs) Uh, We need to take every opportunity to help people grow in their Christ-likeness. I'm doing this uh, PowerPoint, by the way, if you should want a copy of this, if you'll email me, my contact information's on there, I'd be glad to share it with you. Uh, Do you ever feel like this in our culture? that we're trying to live for christ and the whole culture is flowing the opposite direction um, it's like that in our world today especially in north america but the truth is sometimes it's like this even in our churches where as a spiritual leader your assignment is to help people grow in christ-likeness and you've got people say i don't have time for that Why? My kid's in uh, T-Ball, and, and we practice two nights a week, and he has games on Saturday. And, or or my, my kid's in a, um, AAU uh, Travel Ball, and every weekend we got tournaments. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be here. And we've got people that are so engaged in other things that the world is distracting even God's people from taking seriously the command to become a follower of Christ and to look and act like Jesus. And the truth is, you cannot make a disciple out of somebody who doesn't want to be a disciple. If they want to do all of these other things and discipleship is low down on their priority list, you can't make a fully devoted follower of Jesus out of a person like that. So what's the what's the issue? Uh-oh. Um, I thought I'd replace this slide. Uh, this shadow there is the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And if you'll uh, imagine that with me, the Leaning Tower of Pisa is kind of a visual illustration. In uh, in Amos chapter 7, God says, what do you see, Amos? And he said, I saw the Lord standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. And um, what had happened is God's people had departed from the Lord. But uh, here's the problem, and if you look this way, if we've all departed from the Lord and we're leaning, we're a leaning wall, and we're comparing ourselves to each other, we think, well, I'm doing just fine. I'm not quite as good as that one, I'm way better than that one, I'm doing fine it's not until we see the plumb line, the standard of what God expected us to be that we see how far we've departed from what God intended. And uh, if I were to put spiritual terms on the Leaning Tower of Pisa, let me uh, put that on my diagram over here, is the problem at A with the walls that are crooked or is the problem at the foundation at B? Where's the problem? It's the foundation. And uh, I, if I were to attach a huge crane and to that tower and pull it back into place, and I didn't do anything else, and then I let the pressure off, what do you suppose would happen to this tower? Well, it go right back where it was? Maybe keep right on going uh, because of the moment, momentum. If I don't deal with the foundational issue, then I'm not going to anything else I do is going to be a temporary fix at best. And so well, let me put spiritual terms on that on that diagram. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 17. I don't think this is on your handout, but Deuteronomy 30, verse 17, the scripture, God says, if your heart departs, the beginning of a departure from God begins with a shift of our heart where we don't love God as much as we're supposed to love God. Now let me ask you. How much are we supposed to love Him? With all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if we depart from that and we don't love Him like we're supposed to love Him, that starts showing up in our behaviors. And so Deuteronomy 30:17 says, if your heart departs and you no longer obey, um, a lack of obedience is a clear indicator that your heart has departed from the Lord. Now you remember the final command? Teach them to obey how much? Everything I've commanded you. Well if people don't love the Lord and they're not obeying, you can teach them the commands but they're not going to obey the commands. Like they're supposed to obey the commands. And so Deuteronomy says uh, if your heart departs you no longer obey, you disobey, you violate the commandments of the Lord. Uh, And then it goes on to say and you bow down and worship other gods. Well most, uh, most of the Christians in your church would not see themselves as practicing idolatry. But in Ezekiel God says these leaders, he's talking to Ezekiel, the leaders inside the temple had set up idols in their heart an idol of the heart is where we fall in love with something or some activity or some person so much that it distracts us from our wholehearted love for the Lord and uh, there are lots of idols possible idols that are presented to us in our culture uh, the scripture describes some of those in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said you can't love God and money at the same time. You're going to love one or the other. We can fall w- in love with w- money. Uh, we're told that you can't love the world and the things of the world and the love of the Father be in you at the same time. Uh, we're told that you can't love what you have, material things, or what you do. And so their are activities. It could be a career. It could be sporting events that are uh, captivate your love. It could be a hobby. It could be shopping. Nowadays, it could be social media. That you've got so much engagement with other things and you love those things that you don't have time for the Lord. And obedience to Him is down the scale in your priority. So uh, if I were to put terms on this, the foundation is a love relationship with our Heavenly Father. And symptoms up here at the top would be a lack of obedience, disobedience, um, apathy would be a a sample of that, idols of the heart, turning to substitutes for God where we're trusting in the world and the things of the world, the methods, the programs. We may trust in a person rather than trusting in the Lord. And... um, if we don't fix the foundational problem we're not going to have a permanent impact on the other problem so if we're going to make disciples who obey the commands of the lord we've got to help them return to a love for the lord where they want to obey him and uh, one of the things i've done uh, i developed a tool some of you uh, maybe are familiar with this. It's called Come to the Lord's Table. But the Scripture tells us some things we can do to return to our first love. Remember the church at Ephesus? Uh, Jesus said to them, "You've uh, you've worked hard, you've persevered under persecution, you've taken a stand against false doctrine, you've done a lot of good things, but I have this against you. What was that? They left their first love. Well, what did He tell them to do? He said, Remember the height from which you've fallen. That's the height. Look back at the standard. Look back at what you once experienced of my power and presence in your midst. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent. Do do the things you did at first. So one of the things we can do is remember what it used to be like when God was in charge, when He was our Lord, when we did love Him, when we did obey Him. And uh, part of looking back at uh, what we once experienced of God, remember the height from which we've fallen. What happens is when you realize what used to be and you compare that to where you are, you think, I want that back. But it's not just the good old days. We we need to return to our first love for the Lord. We need to do some of the things we used to do. It may be that in those days you were... Um, you were spending time in God's Word and you were praying and you were sharing your faith with other people and you were actively attending church and you were engaged in a small group Bible study and now you go to church twice a month and uh, Bible study is very uh, casual maybe if at all and you've got other things involved, well do the things you used to do memorize scripture, pray Spend time in the Word. Get together with God's people. Remember in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, it says, uh, we ought to consider how we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. And it says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. And one of the challenges in, Christi- in, in our churches today is that your church can see a major decline in attendance and not lose any people. They just don't come as often as they used to. Uh, When I was growing up, you didn't miss a Sunday. I mean, you got awards for attending every Sunday. If you were there all year, you got a a bar on your chain for uh, attendance. And uh, we honored the people who were faithful in attendance. Well. Now we've got people that used to be four weeks a, a month, and now it's three weeks or two weeks. Or some people are satisfied with once a month. If I can get there, uh, I'm I'm a faithful church member, and um, so anyway, we need to return to doing the things we did at first. Uh, another thing, though, the scripture says we love him. Why? because he first loved us and God demonstrated his love for us and while we were yet sinners, what did he do? Christ died died for us. I believe that the Lord's Supper is one of those opportunities for us to, um, to rekindle a first love for our Lord. But it will not happen if you just go through the ritual of passing out the bread and the juice and you say a few words, you quote a scripture, you have prayer, and, you, and people are mad because you ran overtime today. Uh, the way we have traditionally done Lord's Supper has become ritual in so many of our settings, and, uh, but I believe that's an opportunity for us to take seriously rekindling our first love for the Lord. And if we can help people grasp the reality of the suffering and the shame and the, the pain that Jesus endured and His death on the cross because of my sin, that ought to change my heart toward Him so that I would love Him with all my heart. So I have uh, I developed this book actually uh, helping a church that was really... A, it, director of mission said it was about to kill itself and I went to help this church and I said Lord if they don't deal seriously with sin I can't help that church and I sensed the Lord saying invite them to come to my table and help them get ready so that's what I did and I saw a church deal really seriously with sin not because I confronted their sin head on but because Jesus invited them to his table Hmm. and they wanted to come as a worthy guest and I helped them get ready And uh, I saw what God did with them. I wrote this book as a result, as a tool to help a church spend a month, 28 days, getting ready. Part of what you do is you get your focus on the cross. What did Jesus do for us on the cross? And uh, you rekindle your first love for Him. And then you begin to examine yourselves. You remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 11? said you've partaken of the Lord's supper in an unworthy manner and consequently some of you are weak some of you are sick and some of you have died. You ever thought about the fact that taking the Lord's supper could cost you your life? We don't take that seriously. 1 Corinthians 11. Um we don't take that seriously. I, a guy was in here uh, earlier. Some of you heard heard me talking to him, but he, um, First Baptist Church, Decatur, had gone through. Uh, come to the Lord's table, and I was telling him, uh, in Presbyterian churches in Scotland, especially, but in uh, other denominations, have done this. Uh, back in the 1600s is when this first started showing up churches uh, required you to go through a personal examination time to make sure you were prepared because they didn't want anybody dying because of celebrating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Mm -hmm. Paul said you ought to judge yourselves and examine yourselves lest you come under God's judgment. And they took that verse seriously. Might behoove us to take that one seriously. And what they would do is you would go through an examination with a pastor or an elder and if he felt like you were spiritually prepared he would give you a communion token. And he, every church had their own that was unique but uh, uh, they would give you a communion token. Then when they got ready to serve they had a, they would have big tables and they would sit out fill the table up and the deacons would collect the communion tokens. If you didn't have a token, you had to get up and leave. You didn't get served because you've got to prepare for this. You can't treat this casually. And um, there there were abuses to the use of tokens, and so churches don't use them uh, anymore to my knowledge. But uh, I have one here that came from 1742 in Cambus Lane, Scotland. George Whitfield preached the communion services in August of that year. 30,000 people showed up for the communion. Can you imagine doing that without a microphone? I don't know how he did it, but I'm told he did it. Uh, But they had 3,000 communion tokens. And uh, they felt like they might have been able to qualify 4,000, but they didn't have enough tokens for the others out of 30,000 but they took communion much more seriously than we do and um, I think we need to take it seriously Um, this is a little off script but I uh, I remember T.W. Hunt uh, sharing with a group one time uh, he had been teaching the mind of Christ message 1983, Laverne, his wife, was diagnosed with breast cancer and had to go through radical mastectomy and chemotherapy and radiation, and and she was really sick. There were days she couldn't even get out of bed. She was so weak, and T.W. said, uh, one day I was shopping for groceries. He He's a brilliant man, but doing groceries and laundry and housework, he wasn't good at that stuff. (laughs) And he said I was at Kroger and I couldn't read the labels on the groceries and I realized it was because of the tears. And he said I got to get out of here, nobody's going to understand me crying over the groceries. (laughs) But he said I went to... um, I I taught class, he was a seminary professor at Southwestern, he said I taught a seminary class. And he said "Uh, I did the worst job I've ever done in my life. I was so ashamed. And he said, I went back to my office, I locked the door, and I fell on the floor and I shattered into a million pieces. And he said, I lay there weeping before the Lord, and the Lord came to me and said, T.W., you teach the mind of Christ, but there's something about my mind that I know you don't understand, and I knew you couldn't possibly comprehend it without me taking you through this experience. You see, you're broken and shattered because of the sickness of your bride. But I, too, have a bride. And she's really sick. And I knew that you couldn't possibly comprehend how grieved I am over the condition of my church without me taking you through this experience. And T.W. said he felt like God called him that day a part of his job was to help get the bride ready for the wedding supper with the Lamb. Revelation 19 says that the bride will have made herself ready. If I were to ask you, is the bride of Christ, it describes the bride as holy and pure, spotless, without blemish. Uh, Would that describe the church as you know? The bride's not ready. But I believe that one of the reasons Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper is that every time we celebrate, the church gets ready. So that we won't ever be very far away from being clean. And when, when the, we realize the time is near, the bride can hurry and finish the preparations and, and the day will come when we will enter into the wedding feast with the Lamb and the bride will be dressed in white fine linen representing the righteous acts of the saints. So, we need to get the love relationship right. If we can do that, then we're ready to make disciples. And now fasten your seatbelts and let me uh, hurry through some things. Avery Willis used to use this illustration. Any of you studied Master Life? number of you, wow. Uh, You may have seen Avery do this. He would hold up an apple and ask the question, how many apples are represented here? And you could say one, and that would be correct. But then some of you are thinking, wait a minute, there's some seeds in that apple. And if I took those seeds and planted them and grew more apple trees that produce more apples, more seeds, more trees, the truth is that one apple could represent an almost unlimited number of apples. Well, I want to take that same idea and apply it to disciple-making. Here's a guy I met in 2011 in Sierra Leone, one of the poorest countries in the world, 80% Muslim. This guy was a Muslim sheikh um, four years before, and he got saved. So he's a four-year-old Christian. If I were to ask you how many disciples are represented here, you could say one, and that would be correct. But what would you think if I said four-year-old Christian, if I were to say, not one, a hundred? But not a hundred disciples. A hundred churches. (coughs) I don't know about you, I was really skeptical. How in the world could one guy be responsible for seeing a hundred churches started? Uh, But he took us to one of his churches that he started and uh, it was tough getting there. We were going up and down muddy hills uh, on the roads. And then uh, we pulled into this village. We were the first white people to ever visit this village. When we got out of the vans, the kids went running for cover. They were scared <laughs> to death. But they'd never seen ghosts before. <laughs> and, uh, but he, uh, he introduced us to this church. And this church was a year old. And the building you see here, their church building, was six months old. And uh, they had a worship service to greet us, standing room only. And uh, the associate pastor who's here said, I'm so grieved that we've got so few people here to greet you. And uh, he said, we were told that you were coming tomorrow, and most of our people went to the fields to work today. And we said, well, the place is packed. He said, uh, yeah, he said, we outgrew this a long time ago six-month-old building in a village that was a hundred percent muslim less uh, a little over a year before and uh, he he introduced us to this guy in the blue i've faded this out so you can't see faces because for security reasons but his two kids were with him and he said uh, two weeks ago he was a muslim now he's a christian he introduced us to this guy in the praise band and he said he was a muslim not long ago now he's in our praise band and um he held up a Gideon Bible and he said this is the only Bible we have in our church but we're praying for five more Bibles because there are five villages around us that don't know Jesus and we're believing that when God saves people in their village and calls one of them to be their pastor that we ought to be able to give them a Bible for their church and then we realized how, uh, how this guy could start a hundred churches he didn't start a hundred churches by himself But what they do, they're teaching obedience-based discipleship. Whenever you're in God's Word and you're reading God's Word, when they start with creation to Christ, before they ever come to Christ, they're asking the question, since this is truth from God, what do we need to do to obey what God said to us today? And then they come to know Christ, and they get to the Great Commission. And Jesus says, one of my commands is that you're supposed to go make disciples of all peoples. And so this church looks around them and says, well, there are five villages nearest us. They don't know Jesus. That's where we start. And they're working less than a year old church working on five church plans. And then I realized how this other guy could start a hundred churches Uh, In Sierra Leone, the year we were there, they had started 3,000 churches in a country that's 80% Muslim and they did it in six years. Prior to that time, they'd started 12 churches in a couple of decades. But God was beginning to multiply disciple-making. Today, I I heard a report two weeks ago, it's now 12,000 churches that have been started in Sierra Leone. They are deploying missionaries now to other uh, countries in Africa, especially going north and seeing God do a a significant harvest. I mentioned obedience-based discipleship. One of the things we need to understand as we think about making disciples, Jesus didn't say, teach them to know my commands. He said, teach them to... Obey Obey my commands. And if we're going to teach obedience, if we're going to disciple people, we need to teach them to obey the things the Lord has commanded us. And He has the authority to command us and expect our obedience. Uh, Avery Willis used this illustration in Master Life and later he wrote a book called Master Builder. But in it, what he does is he illustrates the growth of a person from being spiritually dead on the lower left-hand side. They get saved and become a spiritual child. We help get them established. They grow into Christ's likeness and become a spiritual disciple. They themselves become a disciple maker and multiply themselves, and, and, and some will then grow to become co-laborers in ministry where they're going to plant churches and become missionaries and that kind of thing. And, uh, and what Avery did in this is try to show that for a spiritually dead person, the disciple maker carries the bulk of the responsibility because they're dead in sin, they can't do anything. And so they have a very low level of responsibility, but what they, they can do is decide to follow Jesus. Uh, but as they begin to grow in their walk with the Lord, the, the disciple becomes more and more responsible for his own growth in discipleship, and the role of the disciple maker decreases as that person grows and matures. I wanna ask you a question. What's your church's optimum goal? What are you aiming for in making disciples? What do you want to produce as a result of your disciple making efforts? And, and this is not based on what's in your um, charter, or in your mission statement, it's based on what are you doing to make disciples. What's your optimum goal? For some churches, their optimum goal is right here. We want to get them baptized, saved and baptized. We can count them on our annual church profile. The state convention will be pleased as punch. Then we've got all these baptisms coming in, and uh, they know where we are. If they want to grow, they can come get it. Is that an appropriate, optimal goal for disciple-making? Well, no, because he said make disciples, not decisions. So that's not an appropriate goal, though for some churches that's about as far as they go in disciple-making. But others are realizing, no, we've got to help a spiritual child get established in their faith so that they begin to grow. We want them to get to the place where they can feed themselves and don't have to be fed, uh, fed a bottle and milk. We want them to grow so they can eat solid food and grow and mature. And so we help that spiritual child. Is that our optimum goal? Well, uh, Jesus wants us to be transformed into the image of Christ. And a baby in Christ may begin to grow, but they're not Christ-like yet. They're growing there. They're making progress. Uh, We need to go after being a spiritual disciple so that they become like Christ. They act like Him. They uh, follow Christ's example, and they can say to us, uh, be a model to others. Hey, come follow my example as I follow Christ. You can get there too. Come on, I'll show you how to do that. Is that your uh, optimal goal of helping them become Christ-like? Well, if you just want people to look and act like Jesus, and that's your optimum goal, and you're not making disciple-makers, you're serving the terminal generation in your church. A lot of the churches that are dying, you understand, don't you, Southern Baptists have about 900 to 1,000 churches a year that die. And I've been to some of those. And I've talked with pastors of some of those. And what happens is you get a congregation that quits making disciples. They're not reaching their community. And what's left is a dozen or two or three dozen people that all have gray or white hair and they're not reaching their community, and they're having funerals. And the day comes when they decide it's time to close the doors. If we're not making disciple-makers, we're serving the terminal generation for our church. Is that 900 to 1,000 churches per year? Yeah, and that's just Except Southern Baptists. Southern Baptist. Yeah. Now, we have to start 1,000 churches a year to break even. Mm. And uh, you know, don't you, that Southern Baptists are declining in number of churches now, so we're not even breaking even anymore because of the decline. So, we need to be about making disciple-makers. Is that the optimum goal? Or do you realize, no, he said go to the ends of the earth. we we got to raise up some people that will take the gospel to other places and start new churches and go to the mission field and those kind of things. And, and develop co-labors in ministry. We need to set an optimum goal in uh, based on what Christ would be pleased with, and then we need to begin to take the actions He guides us to to get there. Let me share with you Paul's optimum goal. Here's Paul's goal. Uh, he he was a pretty good disciple maker, don't you think? We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature or perfect in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Paul said, uh, we're not settling short of perfection. We want people to look and act like Jesus without any pollution or corruption. And that's what I'm going for. I'm not going to be satisfied with anything less than that. And uh, notice he said, I labor, but it's not Paul by himself. I labor with his strength that works powerfully in me. Remember Jesus said, you're going to receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And the great final command in Matthew, he said, uh, oh, and by the way, I'm going to be with you always. Uh, with Him, we can make disciples and have that impact on on our world. Um, let me uh, share a quick testimony with you. I worked for North American Mission Board for two years in New York City. I commuted from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and I spent three weeks in the city and then go home for a week every uh, month. Uh, that's a whole story in itself. But um, when I got there, I was asked to lead the National Day of Prayer event for Harlem. I don't know why they picked me, but I, I was supposed to lead the National Day of Prayer event. It was going to take place at Bethel Gospel Assembly on 120th and Ma- uh, Madison Avenue. And uh, so I, I got to thinking, I'm not sure I know how to lead a prayer meeting for a group of Pentecostals in Harlem. And so I went the week before to see what prayer meeting looked like. They were going to do it on a Wednesday night instead of Thursday, the National Day of Prayer, because they knew, you know, we've got a lot of people already that carve out Wednesday nights, and so they invited all the churches in Harlem to gather with them at Bethel Gospel Assembly to pray for the National Day of Prayer. So I went a week before, and I kind of stood out in the crowd. And they wanted to know what I, who I was and what I was doing there, and introduced myself, and... Uh, Joyce Eady, the uh, Minister of Christian Education, she said, Oh, we know who you are. We've studied Experiencing God here. And she said, "Um, uh, we we use your materials for discipleship. She was talking about Southern Baptists. She said, uh, our pastor requires discipleship of every member. Some of you Anglos don't know this, but African Americans are a lot better at obeying their pastors. And if the pastor says it, you do it. (laughs) Uh, Especially if that pastor's got spiritual integrity. And this pastor did. And so he required discipleship of every member. And she said, currently we give them two choices. They can either do Master Life or the Mind of Christ. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, that's the Master's program. Uh, Those are really demanding courses. And she said, we've had over 800 people graduate through Master Life. And uh, that church had 13 missionaries that had come out of their church that they were sponsoring around the world mm-hmm. out of Harlem. And she said we recently had uh, we have churches that want us to teach them how to do discipleship. And she said we recently had a meeting 110 people, 10 churches represented, and we're just teaching them how to do master life. And uh, this church is having a profound impact on Harlem. Uh, Henry Blackaby and I went and joined with them when they did an evangelism conference for Har- Harlem, had churches from all over the region that attended there. They went out into the streets after they did some training and did witnessing on the street corners, and then they had a concert on at the state office building on um, 106th Street, and I lost my hearing that day. <laughs> uh, but I watched people just walking down the street would go to the stage and engage somebody in conversation, and they would lead them to the Lord. They were leading people to the Lord, and a bunch of people that day came to Christ. And I realized, Harlem's not the same city you see in the movies. I walked the streets of Harlem by myself. Now, there are probably places i would be good that I didn't go there, but... Harlem is not the same city, and one of the reasons is because of Bethel Gospel Assembly and other churches like them that are making disciples, who are making disciples, and it's changing a city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's a picture from a church not far from us, Elizabeth Baptist Church. Uh, some of you may know of them. They uh, had invited me in 2015 to a graduation ceremony. 1,245 people were finishing Book 4 of Master Life, and they had a graduation ceremony. These are the people who showed up on Wednesday night for the ceremony. And um, they had 104 groups, because at, uh, at, Be- at Elizabeth Baptist Church, you got to do it Jesus' way, so it's 12 people per group. And if you didn't have 12, you couldn't have a group because you got to have 12. That's the way Jesus did it. And they uh, had 104 groups that finished Master Life. And I saw a church in our day, in our generation, that is serious about making disciples to multiply. Um. One of the questions, though, is you start thinking about how we're going to do that at our church. And especially those of you who may be pastors, you're thinking, I can't handle a a big assignment like that. There's more than I can do myself already. One of the things I would recommend to you is go find the discipleship reserve corps in your church. These would be people who have been discipled in their past more than most of the people in your church. And some of them may be older adults like me that they grew up going to church every time the doors were open. And they've been discipled. And and they're thinking, you know, the younger people need to take over from here. Well, the younger people, they may have the energy and, and, and uh, that kind of thing, the ambition, but they don't have the experience that you've got and the wisdom and the knowledge of God's Word and... So go look for those people. Got peop- you may have people in your church that they studied master life or they may have been in Campus Crusade or Navigators or Inner Varsity, and they have uh, studied Experiencing God or the Mind of Christ or something or maybe they used to teach Sunday school or discipleship training in, in days past and you need to find the people who are in the Reserve Corps in your church. And call them together and have a prayer meeting and remind them of this final command of Jesus and as a church decide we're going to repent of our lack of obedience to the final command and we're going to take this one seriously. We're going to obey, at least this one, we're going to obey that command and Lord, You showing us how and You helping us, we're going to make disciples and teach our people to obey You. So consider getting a reserve corps together and pray with them. Um, One of the things that God convicted me about years ago, I was with uh, uh, Jeff Ingram in Louisiana doing a tour. Jeff had grown up in Navigators, had been discipled by them. And as I was listening to him, Avery Willis was influenced by Navigators. And uh, in preparation for Master Life, he'd been shaped by them. And I realized that uh, I have used, in most of the book uh, leaders guides I have written through the years, I've used the y'all come mentality for disciple making. And so you uh, decide on which course you're going to offer, set a date and the times, find a room, get a leader, and then you announce it in the bulletin, you maybe make an announcement from the pulpit, and whoever comes, those are the ones you disciple. Well, uh, that that's a way to make disciples, but Jesus didn't say just just for the eager and the hungry make disciples we're supposed to make disciples of every follower of christ and uh and so I realized I had not been taking seriously how how we need to get after everybody we need every member you know Bethel Gospel assembly modeled it for me their pastor required everybody to be engaged in discipleship and so one of the things I would recommend is that as you develop discipleship leaders, you call the Reserve Corps to active duty and you begin to recruit people for discipleship. Extend the invitation. It is really easy for me to look at my church bulletin and see the classes that are coming up and not to think that I ought to be in one of those. It's easy to think, "Now nah, I don't think so this time. And we've got a lot of people that, my church that runs, uh, now we're running with a new pastor, maybe seven or eight hundred, we have three classes on Wednesday night that are running about ten apiece. That's not taking the final command seriously. Of course, there are a lot of other things we do with uh, small groups in discipleship, but we need to start recruiting people and get serious about helping them grow in discipleship. Another uh, idea that I think is important for us, and that is uh, if I were to go to a university to get a degree in engineering, they would allow me to take some elective classes. And so I could take bowling if I wanted to, or art appreciation. If I were so inclined, I could take a dance class. That wouldn't be me, but uh, I I grew up in a preacher's home. Uh, But uh, I would not graduate without Being proficient in the core curriculum for an engineer because they don't want buildings and bridges falling down because I didn't learn the material. And uh, we need to think about how a core curriculum for disciple making is a valuable part of what we need to do. If we're going to teach people to obey everything, There's some basic things that you need to know how to do as a follower of Jesus Christ, and we need to start from the very beginning. The longer you wait after the first day a person comes to know Christ, the longer you wait to help them begin to find victory in their life with Christ, the longer you wait, the more likely they're going to come to this conclusion. It didn't work for me because we've told them that you can have forgiveness of sin and you can have victory over sin. You don't have to sin the rest of your life. And if we don't help them begin to experience a personal relationship with the God that created them, it's not going to be it's not going to be long before they drop out uh, and drop by the wayside. So we need to that establish a core curriculum and if you don't have a core curriculum, I don't know about your church. My church doesn't have one, but I've got a new pastor, and I've started planting seeds already. And I was on the pastor search committee as chairman, so I'm hoping he'll listen. <laughs> and we, we can get a core curriculum. Uh, and you'll, if you'll flip over to the back side of your handout, I've given, I, if you don't have one, I want to recommend some options for you. Number one, I've written a little booklet, it's called Week One, Taking Your First Steps as a Follower of Jesus Christ. It's a seven-day devotional, and it's just to lay out the basic foundations of what this uh, faith in Christ looks like, and uh, it talks about Bible study and a personal relationship with God through prayer and memorizing Scripture. It talks about next steps, that I need to be baptized, I need to get plugged into a small group Bible study where I can have people who can help me in my walk with the Lord, those kind of things. Uh, you have my blog address on your uh, handout, but if you'll go to this blog address, uh, that's not correct. Scratch blo- uh, on my slide. I think it's correct on your handout. It's blog. Boy, i got to correct my, hand- uh, my PowerPoint. Uh, it's blog.lifeway.com forward slash growing disciples. IT people like to change things every once in a while and it throws me a loop. Um, It's correct on your handout, Uh, on the front, under my contact information, and uh, if you'll go to that uh, blog address, at the top of the page, there's a tab that says free print downloads. This is one of the downloads. You have permission to download it, print your own. If you, the back is blank, if you want to customize it for your church, you can do that. If you want the actual Word document so you can edit something on the inside, uh, let me know and I'll help you. And Lifeway's given me permission to give it away. Some people don't know that we have an ongoing curriculum for discipleship. It's called Baptist Adults, and uh, it's a quarterly material that you can use, get on the, undated, or the uh, dated order form and uh, it has uh, a balanced approach to teaching the basic things that we need to include in disciple making. Uh, Something else, and I forgot to put this, I don't have this in my uh, PowerPoint, but nowadays all of our adult ongoing curriculum including uh, Gospel Project, uh, Explore the Bible, and Bible Studies for Life, each one of those you can instead of the regular participant guide, you can get a daily discipleship guide. And it's a different approach, basically the same content, but you have homework during the week that you study, and then there's some encouragement for you to get together with a smaller group of um, maybe three or four same gender group, and you all help hold each other accountable and help mature uh, together in Christ. Another Part of this, and I'm going to fly through this, is the Growing Disciples series. Um, I wrote the first book. It's called The Call to Follow Christ, Six Disciplines for New and Growing Believers. And it's a seven-week class. And then there's a six-week study on each of these disciplines. So you have Abide in Christ, Live in the Word, Pray in Faith, Fellowship with Believers, What's It Mean to Be the Church, Witness to the World. Minister to others, and that's a uh, forty-three weeks of foundational discipleship. You can start with any one of those, or you can uh, go through the whole series. Uh, but that could be a foundational discipleship to get people uh, to studying uh, God's word and praying and ministering and witnessing and all of those things, and start that really early. Another series is called the Disciples Path with six courses, The Beginning, The Way, The Call, The Truth, The Life, The Mission, and I've got a couple samples up here in the Leader's Guide. Uh, That's an option. They took that same material and developed a one-year curriculum with it called The Journey, and it comes in four volumes and it's priced, priced like a dated curriculum, so it's less expensive than some of the other resources. Any one of those could be a part of a core curriculum for your church. If you want to go deeper, Bible knowledge, there's a step by step through the Old and New Testament that can give people an a, a overview of the Old Testament and the New Testament so that they can know the Scriptures. Uh, if we're going to obey the things the Lord's taught us, we need to know that. We need to multiply mature disciples, and there's some resources that go deeper. Like a disciples, prayer life, master life, experiencing God, mind of Christ, and uh, I want to encourage you to just um, help people. Uh, there's the correct address, um, and uh, I want I want to encourage you to help people uh, become faithful, fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let's obey Christ's final command. Uh, the next generation is dependent on our doing our job. Uh, I've got to quit. You've got my contact information if I can help you. And um, let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, I believe that the reason folks are in this class is because they want to obey your final command. We want to make disciples. Lord, we want to do that effectively. We want to do it fruitfully. Lord, our desire is that Our desire is that um, we would make disciples that multiply and our churches would grow and reach our communities with the gospel of Jesus Christ we want to be like the New Testament churches to, to add daily to the church those that are being saved so Lord I pray for my brothers and sisters you've put it into our hearts to obey you now I pray that you'll show us how what to do and how to do it where we are I pray, Lord, that you would help us to help your people return to a first love for you as our Savior and surrender to you as our Lord so that as we grow in Christlikeness, we will choose to obey you and we will demonstrate to a watching world what Jesus looks like so that they too will be drawn to saving faith in your Son. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go enjoy lunch.